0: From the heart of Dubai, where tomorrow is being built today, to the world. Welcome to the CTO Show with Mehmet. Here, we redefine technology and reimagine possibilities. With Mehmet, delve into the riveting realms of AI, cybersecurity, and digital technology. Experience the thrilling highs and lows of startups. Immerse yourself in the spirit of entrepreneurship and witness the future of business innovation being written in real time. Now, without further ado, let's tune in and explore the future.
1: Hello and welcome back to a new episode of the CTO Show with Mehmet. Today, I'm very pleased joining me from Boston in the US, Jim Berquist. Jim the way I love to do it is to keep it to my guests to introduce themselves. But just I want to mention that Jim, you know, he
2: is a rebel. <laughs> so Jim, I will leave the introduction to you. That sounds good. Thank you. Yeah, uh, I'm. Uh, my name is Jim Burquist. I did three Silicon Valley startups, and then I went and got an MBA and went to big companies. And you know, the culture shock of going from a ten-person startup to a large company was far worse than the culture shock I ever experienced when I moved from America to Japan for three and a half years. Like that was nothing, right? And I've always rejected the idea that it has to be that way. And so I I led a turnaround at Millennium and a fast strategy transformation at Best Doctors. And now I'm launching an innovation firm called Engine 2 Innovation for businesses that need a second growth engine.
1: Great, great. And again, thank you for being here today. As a first thing, and you just mentioned, you know, about, you know, living the shock. So what, what deal was the, the experience, you know, shifting from, you know, being in the Silicon Valley startup space and pivoting to leading transformation in established companies? So because usually we see the other way around, right? So what was the main driver for you to, to take this path?
2: Well, I think that startups are exciting. I mean, it is a blast to work at a startup. You know, startup is a big bucket of challenging, interesting problems. And when you work at a startup, you have a lot of freedom. Just reach into that bucket and pick a problem that you are, you know, that you want to solve and, and you just go solve it. And that's why when you're working at a startup, you know, if you're working at a 10 person startup, you've got 10 people who are using the big brains to do what they think is right. You don't ask permission. You don't get, you know, there's not all this politics and, and this is my role. And that's your role and stay out of, you, you stay in your lane. Uh, that's not how startups work, especially the good startups. And so, uh, but the thing is, is that we know how to do startups. Like, like, you know, we have a model that works. We have a whole venture capital industry that works. Big companies right. do not. And that's why I think that there are, there are so much talent in big companies. And sometimes this is surprising because there's a lot of attitudes in big companies where we just have the wrong people. You know, like our people are, 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 are deadwood, and and there's nothing we can do about it. And, you know, maybe we need to bring in the, the cool kids and, you know, uh, buy some ping pong tables and bean bags and give them a really cool space. And we're going to be an innovative company. The thing is, is that the innovators are right inside your company already. You just haven't tapped into this. And we know this because as you said, a lot of people go the opposite direction, right? They work in a big company, they get, they get bored and frustrated. And so they go join a startup at the big company. They're they're stifled and they look like they're not very creative or innovative they go to startup and they do amazing things. So it's, it's not the people it's, it's kind of the, uh, we've got something wrong that is kind of killing the entrepreneurial spirit. And that's really what I focused on, you know, going into big companies. And if we simply create some space for people to use their big brains to do the things that they want to do, like, it's not like, you know, change is hard, all that kind of, all that kind of nonsense, uh, people want to do, things they want to do uh, they want to tackle challenges make a difference and so you can really tap into that and that's what I'm focused on
1: great and is this what you call as a model the corporate rebel model
2: yeah so the corporate rebel model was there was a whole process on how, on, on how, how I got there but really the corporate rebel model is simply a name for a pattern that shows up in, all the time in big bureaucratic companies and organizations and and what it means is that uh corporate rebels are simply employees who bump into a problem or bump into an opportunity and they say oh my god this this is crazy like why you know why why is it this way or why aren't we doing something and the thing is is that uh sometimes you can go to your manager and get permission to work on your idea most of the time you can right Uh, the business is focused on reliable, efficient execution of the proven business model, which is what they need to be focused on. Uh, The corporate rebels as a pattern are simply employees who say, you know what? I'm so energized and so confident that this could be something big. I don't know if it's going to succeed. I I may not even know what I'm doing, really. (laughs) Like I may be the the last person on earth who should be doing this, but somebody's got to do it. And so I, I'm going to do all of my regular work, and but on top of that, I'm also going to work on this unofficial Skunk Works project <laughs> and, uh, and do that as well. And so the corporate rebels are really, they're always some of the best employees you have in the company. Because if you're a corporate rebel and you're working on a kind of an unofficial Skunk Works project, you don't slack off. You don't do shoddy work. Like the whole goal is to kind of fly under the radar and not attract attention to yourself. You're not trying to get yourself fired. You're trying to get something, your idea far enough along that other people can start to see what you see because it's really hard to sell ideas. But when you've got a project that has traction, momentum, and you've got something to show for it, then everybody says, okay, now I, now, now I get it. Right. And, and that's how, that's how the corporate rebels work. And this is a pattern that, I, I'm guessing that this was around at the time of the pharaohs. Like it's just a it's just a part of human nature that this is what people do when you have no power, no permission, no funding, no anything, but you want to do something, you just go off and do it.
1: Mm-hmm. So how that uh, differs, um, Jim, from you know the the term entrepreneurship?
2: Yeah, entrepreneurs are um, it's a. It's a word that tends to be owned and delegated to kind of the the chosen innovators, and so normally you know a company says, Okay, here's our employees, and they they do you know the business as usual stuff, and then we have to we have to be innovative, and so we need to hire entrepreneurs and we need to select the 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 few people in our company who are bold, creative talented people that are going to do this for us and so i would say that corporate rebels and entrepreneurs you you know every corporate rebel is an entrepreneur in a lot of ways Mm the difference is that nobody knows that a corporate rebel is an entrepreneur yet because you know they they just look like somebody that is either quietly doing something that nobody knows or when the manager finds out uh in a lot of cases in many cases especially when they come when, when it comes to creating the big breakthroughs uh these employees are they, they get harassed they get bad performance reviews, they they are threatened to be fired simply because they have an idea that their managers don't like and so it's almost like you have to earn the term the term uh, entrepreneur mm-hmm. so you know maybe you could view entrepreneurship as an umbrella term that is larger than corporate rebels, corporate rebels is the smaller subset of people who simply innovate even though they don't have permission they don't have funding they don't have any any authority inside the company to do it but they do it anyway
1: yeah yeah it's a great explanation now you you mentioned something at the beginning about like how in the startups you know the smaller teams the more agility they have and so on now when companies grow you know and this is something i've seen it again and again and again I call like they become a little bit like dinosaurs, right? So so in order, you know, like a dinosaur to turn, you know, like right or left, it needs a lot of time. And the reason is there will be a lot of bureaucracies behind, you need approvals from everyone. So within the model you're talking about, Jim, what could be a way to let this dinosaur in just of course like a fictional way, yeah, become more agile and and you know allow this group of people to 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 take decision faster, does it need you know, some uh, endorsement from, from you know, the upper management, the board, or maybe? Or, or is it like an internal movement that starts from down and then it goes all the way up? How does it work, actually?
2: It's a great question, and it's something that took a while to figure out exactly how to, how to make it happen. Because what, what happens is that if you go inside a company and people are doing their job, Uh, There's a lot of autonomy in in companies today where, you know, let's say that you're in charge of filing documents, right? (laughs) And and you think of a better way to file documents. That tends to be a fairly low risk, well understood. If you want to continuously improve that project, you're not normally going to get into a lot of trouble or have a lot of problems doing that. And a lot of people do that, which is great. You know, we need all of that kind of stuff. So, but the corporate rebels, they, they tackle problems that are way outside of what they're supposed to be doing. Mm -hmm. Uh, They may be trying to solve a problem that maybe somebody else is working on something. And they think that that approach is, is like a slow motion train wreck. (laughs) And and they're saying, you know, like I'm worried about this and I don't know what to do. I've talked to people maybe or whatever, and nobody's listening. Nobody sees what I see. And so that, or they just find something that is so bizarre. You know, like uh, when, when Gary Starkweather created the laser printer, uh, you know, his boss thought that putting a laser inside an office machine made about as much sense as putting a nuclear bomb inside a, you know, an office machine. Like, why would you do that? This is, Lasers are dangerous. Everybody knows they're dangerous. Like, why would you even think that this is a good idea? So, so that's kind of the, the corporate rebels are are different in that way where they're um and the problem is is that they're not there's not very many people who are willing to risk their careers (laughs) to to go and and do this so my estimation and i've talked to a lot of corporate rebels uh, is that there's probably one in a thousand employees that are actually kind of wired or geared to do this now what's funny is that when we were in kindergarten Everybody did this, right? Like when you think about your little kindergartner self, when you wanted to go do something, you didn't ask permission. You just went out and did it, right? And you felt, you know, you fell down 80% of the time. You didn't care. You got right back up and kept going. But by sixth grade, like nobody does this anymore. We all ask permission. We stand in line. We, you know, we follow the orders. And, and so um, I'm a corporate rebel. And, you know, somehow I missed the, the lesson in third grade or, you know, whatever happened where I, I didn't realize that you're not supposed to do this. It took a long time, but what, what you, what, what ends up happening is that if you want to make this, uh, an innovation model, you can't rely on the people who are willing to do this, you know, risk their careers, the one in a thousand that's, that's not enough. And so the, the corporate rebel model is really, how do you go into a company and get 10 to 20% of your employees doing this. You're never going to get everybody to be an innovator, right? And you don't need everybody to be an innovator if you're a, if you're a successful company with a proven business model. But um, what's special about this is that uh, because corporate rebels work right within the bureaucracy, right within the management model, you don't have to change anything about how the company operates. However, you can't let this just be a bottom-up, uh, you know, movement, because managers will kill it, not because they're bad people, just because that they don't understand it. And it looks like it looks like chaos to them and disruption, because they don't understand it. And so the corporate rebel model is really you need three things to make it work. First, you need the CEO, or the business unit leader, whoever's on top, mm-hmm. just say, you know what, we have got a lot of talent in this company. We've got a lot more ideas than we can personally fund and sponsor as projects. And we, we don't want to hold people back. So, uh, if you have big ideas and something that you think could be big for the company, don't ask me permission. Cause I'm probably gonna have to say, no, I don't want to have to say no, right? Like just go do it. And if it turns into something interesting, then we can talk you need then that lets the managers know that uh, you do not have permission to kill projects. And so managers can ignore projects or they can sponsor projects that they like, but they can't kill projects. And that turns out to be incredibly important. It's, it's why Google's 20% time failed and similar schemes always fail is because managers always reserve the right to kill projects they don't like. And it turns out that's exactly how you kill the breakthroughs that would bubble up naturally inside of your company. And then the, the third thing you need is you need a catalyst, somebody who uh, is outside of the management system that can offer dedicated support to the employees. Because it turns out most people actually need somebody to kind of almost like give them permission, you know, and mm-hmm. management team for all kinds of, you know, for all the reasons we talked about, you're going, if you say yes, you're going to have to give them time. You're going to probably have to give them a little bit of funding. If the project doesn't work out, you're probably gonna have to accept some responsibility for that as a manager. You don't want any of that stuff. So, but you need somebody that employees can go to and say, look, I've got some crazy idea. I don't know if it's going to work. And the catalyst is not there to pick the good ideas because nobody can predict the future. That's really one of the key insights. When you look at the break, you know, big companies do create breakthroughs from time to time. Uh, They don't, You know, they don't come from picking the winners. They come from unexpected people, unexpected places. And so the the catalyst is not there to try to pick the winners or say, hey, I don't know, that's a, or try to connect anybody or all they're there is to say, look, I don't know if this is gonna work. Like I I can't predict the future any better than you can, but if anybody can do it, I believe you can. And so find the smallest, simplest little thing that you can do to get started and go do it. And, and, you know, once uh, people are in motion, Newton's law of inertia kind of starts to take over and they, you know, they keep going, but getting them past what's called the refusal of the call is a really tricky thing. So you do need it to be an official skunk works program for corporate rebels where the CEO says, let's do this. You have a catalyst that provides dedicated support to employees and the managers, their rules are, you can't kill projects. You can ignore them or you can sponsor projects you like. And that's it. That's all you need. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Now, you mentioned, you know, about Google and the 20% uh, thing, you know, um, and you just, you know, you, you said something which, uh, not, not that I just figured out, but again, it it reminded me about, you know, the famous, you know, the, the graveyard of Google products. You know, <laughs> the, yeah. So, why do you think, you know, that model didn't go well, so we needed another one, like the... Uh, the one that you, we were talking about, which is the company-level model?
2: It, it's a great question. So Google's 20% time was a complete failure in terms of creating new growth engines, right? It was great for marketing. It it, it really helped Google present themselves as a very innovative company, but it did not produce even one single $100 million business um, from, from the Google's 20% time. Uh, and so, you know, a lot of people say that, like, Google AdWords was a Google's 20% time project. That's not true. That was actually a corporate rebel project. And so, uh, so Google's 20% time didn't work. And the real, the key reasons are first managers had the right to kill projects. They didn't like just like Gary Starkweather's manager who thought, you know, putting a laser in an office machine was a ridiculous idea. And it's like, I'm all for you being innovative and creative, but don't do stupid idiotic things. Right? Like that (laughs) just and so that's kind of, that's how managers think is that they have the, uh, you know, part of their job is to, is to not waste companies resources. And uh, the thing is, is with corporate rebel projects, there are no resources dedicated to these projects, you know, mm-hmm. they're doing everything they're supposed to do. They're not given 20% time. They figure out their own time. And, and that's one of the things that is important to understand with these projects is that uh, any employee who has deadlines and schedules in their work has what what we call white space, right? There's, there's always some uncertainty in your job, just like there's uncertainty in how much, you know, you need to budget for something or how long it's going to take you to get downtown when you need to, you know, go there and you're not exactly sure how the traffic's going to be. You always have to build in a little bit of white space. Uh, and so it turns out every job has you know about 20% the, the the rule of thumb is 20% of anyone's job is white space now they're not going to have free time you know ex, this extra time that they can free up to work on something more exciting Th- that does not happen every day or even every week but if you really want to free up time for uh, an unofficial Skunk Works project you can do that so so you know these these projects you get no time they get no funding they don't get any management support they cost they literally cost the company nothing Uh, And so Google's 20% time didn't need to award 20% time because employees can figure that out. And that's what corporate rebels have been doing, like I said, since the time of the Pharaohs, right? (laughs) They they, they figure out how to free up time, work efficiently, do your job well, but don't waste time and screw around and look busy when you're not busy, right? Just get your job done and then work on this more exciting project uh, uh, alongside that. And so the other thing is just that Google was all about transparency and, you know, they wanted to have data and metrics and, you know, we're going to, you need to show progress and support right from the beginning. And it turns out that in the fuzzy front end of innovation, it's not appropriate to, to do metrics and, and kind of transparency like that. And you can think about it from your own life. When you have kind of an idea that is so crazy, you don't even know how to like explain it to people, right? you're probably not even going to tell your own wife or or husband about that idea, right? You're just going to kind of, you kind of want to quietly have some space just to kind of quietly explore and work on it. And then as you start to have some success, then you might be a little bit less guarded about it. Um, It takes time to figure out how these things are going to work. It takes time to even be able to explain it, to figure out the terminology you might use. And so you need some quiet space some some private space where everything isn't posted on you know like whiteboards and driven by metrics some things take a long time to get together to come together it's not because it's um you know people are inept it's because these problems are complicated and the breakthroughs are the ones that are the most complicated and complex of all right like nobody's done this before <laughs> we're pioneering entirely new ground and that's the focus that I'm interested in, is how to go in and make it a, a repeatable way to actually create breakthroughs in a company. And you're not going to do it by letting managers pick the projects and, and doing metrics and transparency. So Google, I think they were well-meaning, but they did exactly the things you would do to kill all the gr- great ideas, the ideas that could have the potential to become something big and only keep those things that actually would... Um, would get a lot of, you know, a lot of support inside the company, but actually, and, and would look good on the metric scale, but would actually never turn into anything big for the company.
1: Yeah. Like, uh, makes sense a lot to me, you know, and you know, when, when you see sometimes why not only Google, like usually in the tech space specifically, we see. A product with great traction and I'm sure maybe a rebel he came out with or she came out with the idea. And then all of a sudden you see, okay, you know what? It's not only Google that does this, by the way. It's, I've seen a lot of companies, okay, you know what? Like we decided to retire this this project. And I think if they have just waited, to your point about time, maybe a couple of months sometimes, or okay, 12, 18, I don't know. But it's not your main business, so you're not losing money actually keeping this project alive. Um, yeah, but the, the same story we hear it in, in, in companies, especially when they go out from the startup and they start to be under the mercy of investors and you know the why we are wasting your resources here so we started to see this now while preparing to for for the episode i've seen like you you mentioned that teams you know usually they don't innovate right so you um why don't innovation teams work like why why do you think this way
2: yeah it, it the innovation teams are, they're good people. They do a lot of good work. They do a lot of cool projects. Right. But when you look at where, you know, what actually happens inside of a big company, it turns out they do not create the hundred million dollar businesses or the billion dollar businesses. Those come from corporate rebels. And so, and, and, you know, why don't they work? Well, innovation teams are good at certain things. If you want to do kind of the next the next step in your existing business, all, you know, with you're working within your paradigm and you want to, you know, push performance 20% or cut cost 20% or, you know, add, add certain capabilities that fit firmly within what you are good at already. Uh, then you pick the top, you know, you pick the best and the brightest and you put them on that project and, and they will normally deliver. This is what companies do, right? Uh, they're also good if you just, if there's, emerging technology that you just kind of want to understand uh better so that the you know they can inform the executives and have some in-house kind of understanding of this instead of going to consultants who are going to tell every company all your competitors the same exact thing you kind of want to just explore that technology innovation teams are great for that if you have a big customer that has a big check that says look if you can hit exactly specifications uh, you know, here's you're, a you're hundred million dollar contract or billion dollar contract, then innovation teams are good at with that because that's just it's again, it's kind of a stretch relative to the existing paradigms. What is different, though, is when you're actually trying to create a new growth engine, which really means you're trying to create a breakthrough. You're trying to do something that nobody in the company, nobody in the industry has done before. Something that's going to surprise people. Uh, you can either go buy a company that's already growing. And that's great because then, you know, next quarter you can show growth, like, wow, look how, look how much we've grown. The problem is, is that, you know, acquisitions uh, destroy more value than they create 65% of the time. And, you know, tech-based companies, especially, they want to be viewed as innovative. So they really want to be able to do this stuff internally. And, um, and that's what we're saying is that use innovation teams for the right purposes. But if, when you want to go out and create the next big thing, you're not going to get there. From the uh, from the innovation teams, it's going to come from the the rule of you know number one rule of innovation breakthroughs is you know most breakthroughs come from people and places the experts least expect. This means you're not going to be able to predict the winners. So we need to what and you mentioned kind of the startup ecosystem and how it's it's you know how is it different how is it related. Well, venture capitalists use this exact same model venture capitalists don't go out and pick certain people or certain ideas and say you're you know this is the one that's going to be a billion dollar business they sit back and wait until a startup gets far enough along they've already have some traction some momentum some customers some revenue that's when you go and pitch a vc and and so they plug into this vibrant entrepreneurial ecosystem you know you have where you have thousands and thousands of people just doing all kinds of crazy things and they don't, you know, when you're an entrepreneur and you want to go launch a startup, you don't go knock on the VC's door and say, you know, hey, what do you think of this idea? Or, you know, can I have a little funding or can I have permission, you know, to work on this? You don't do any of that stuff. You start trying all kinds of crazy things. And most of the time, you know, you're bootstrap funded, you're eating ramen noodles and you know, you're doing everything on the cheap. And it turns out that innovation in the early days actually really loves scarcity. Like if you give people a bunch of time and money to work on, uh, an innovation, they're going to do stupid, obvious things. <laughs> Whereas if you give somebody nothing, I mean, like literally nothing, they will be very creative and very innovative and, in, and, in, and actually being able to really figure out the the fuzzy front end of innovation in a very cheap and inexpensive and fast way. And so what we're saying is that the VCs, they sit, they, they plug in this vibrant economic, uh, in, uh, entrepreneurial ecosystem that, that they have nothing to do with actually creating or nurturing or supporting. They sit back. Once the winners start to emerge, then you can get a visa, uh, an appointment with the VC. They, uh, and, um, and then they will, you know, only five out of a hundred startups that, uh, that get far enough along to even pitch a VC actually get VC funding. So the odds are really bad in terms of getting VC funding. And then it turns out that VCs only make money on 20% of their investments, uh, you know, 80% of the time they lose. Right. And so, um, and that's after they already have some momentum and some traction and, you know, most of the, most of the time they make a you know, modest returns on their investments. Every once in a while they invest in a Google or Facebook, it makes the whole game worth playing. What we're saying is that you need to do that inside this, your, your company. Uh, if you, you know, if you, if you can create a, an, a, innovative ecosystem inside your company that you don't have to provide any funding, no time, you don't have to pick winners, then you can wait, sit back and wait until you see projects that start to look interesting to you. And then you can uh, support those projects with official funding and and, and support. And, and then that's when the metrics and everything else kicks in, just like at a startup. And that puts you a lot of pressure on you, but you you can't do that in the very earliest stages. You've got to wait until they're actually starting to to get momentum and traction on something. And then it's appropriate to start to say, okay, now let's hit milestones and, and kind of show progress. We're trying to do this at the earliest stages in big companies. It's forcing us to pick the winners. It's putting a lot of unnecessary pressure on startups, uh, you know, on the internal startups, because they've got to they, they've got to hit these, you know, metrics and milestones when they're just trying to figure things out. And so it's a fundamentally broken model and, the corporate rebel model lets you work the way that the VCs do. We have a model that works. Let's use it. Yeah. Is there
1: any success stories that uh, you have seen that Jim? Like any or you know examples you can give us?
2: Yeah. So like I said, big companies do occasionally create billion-dollar breakthroughs, right? <laughs> and um, you know, the uh, the laser printer, uh, Gary Starkware created the laser printer. He was a corporate rebel. Like I said, he he nearly got fired to do that. Uh, led lighting like we're we have we're in the middle of a revolution where our entire lighting infrastructure has transitioned in just seemingly a matter of years right that was all based on uh, a breakthrough uh, in how to create bright blue led which was required to create uh, pure white lighting Uh, and there was a corporate rebel called shuji nakamura and he did it the exact same way right he Didn't get permission. Didn't get funding. He, you know, got harassed and almost fired, and persevered and and created a billion-dollar breakthrough for, uh, for his company. Gary uh, Classen at at um, Black Blackberry. He created BBM. Same story, same way. So you know, Gordon Teal, Dick Drew. There's just so many stories of people that have created billion-dollar breakthroughs in this way, and um, and that's why. And these are the. These are the one in thousand people who are willing to risk their careers. Imagine if we took the, you have to risk your career to do this off the table for employees, you had 10 to 20% of your employees doing this. You would have a lot more uh, growth engines created inside big companies.
1: Yeah, these are very good examples actually. And, uh, you know, it's funny enough that usually we, we hear that a lot of these projects, you know, that now we use them on daily basis. Once upon a time, they were rejected, and people were, as you mentioned, uh, laughed at and uh, said, "Oh, are you crazy and 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 so on." But actually, they turned out to be the best thing they have av- ever come uh, up with. now that, that, that's he, right.
2: I mean, you know the, the breakthroughs actually take people sur- by surprise. They come from the crazy idea that everybody hates until it works, and then everybody says, "Oh, wow, of course that works, right?" It's funny yeah. that uh, Steve Jobs is. Everyone knows Steve Jobs created the iPhone. The problem is, is that he didn't create the iPhone, right? Of course not. <laughs> Steve Jobs was actually really good at getting the best out of the people inside the company that he he was. I mean, he was he was a terrible person. He had terrible interpersonal skills, but he actually he didn't say that's a stupid idea. I never want to see you working on that again. He said that's a stupid idea, and, and come back to me when when you've got something better, right? So the people who created the original foundation for the iPhone, you know, the, the, the kind of touch-based gesture-based, um, uh, input methodology. They, they were, a, a, you know, a few corporate rebels who started working on something in as an unofficial skunkworks project. And the first time they approached Steve jobs, they, they really thought, look, we're, you know, we've, we've got some success. They spent a long time and this is really working. We can show results. They went to Steve jobs. He's like, this is the stupidest thing I've ever seen in my life. Like, you know, stop wasting my time. What are you doing? And so this is how the, the the corporate rebels uh, most of the innovation stories start at the point where everybody understands the potential. And then you kind of tell the story and it just looks like started from success and and grew into success. But when you really peel back the onion to the very earliest stages, they are these long, lonely, kind of terrifying journeys by, by corporate rebels, by people who think differently that say, you know what, my gut is telling me something is here. I, I don't have any data. I don't have any proof yet, but something is here. And all I need to do is get it far enough along that other people can do it. And so when you know Steve Jobs said, that's a terrible idea, they didn't say, okay, scrap it and, you know, never work on it again. They went back and kept working on it as an unofficial skunk works project. And that's why these projects are special is because nobody can kill these projects. Like they, they cannot be killed. And that's a very important thing. They, they were able to then keep working on it. And finally they got a far enough along and like Steve Jobs was like, Oh my God, this is, this is going to change everything. And it did, but you have, you can't do it. If you, if you kill things in the early stages, it's, it's a very fragile time for innovation and for peop- and for the people who try to do this stuff. It's very easy to kill, and what what we're trying to do is say, look, let's not kill it, and let's make it easier for people to start, you know, just have enough space just to simply not be fired because they have an idea that other people in the company don't like. If we take that off the table, we're going to have a lot more of this.
1: Yeah, and to this point, if someone is very curious to know the story behind, so you can read the book by Tony Fadel, who was actually... You know the guy behind the the i the uh, sorry the iPod and the iPhone, and you know he had to deal with the bipolar disorder of Steve Jobs, and that he talks a lot about it. And yeah, I, I remember when I read the book a couple of months back. You know, <laughs> it's a little bit funny because if if these guys they didn't have the persistence and the perseverance that you just mentioned, Jim, they could have just said, you know what, like, you know, like screw it. We were, not, we we're actually resigning from the company. The good thing also, on the other hand, and this is why, you know, if you remember, I asked you at the beginning of, um, you know, of the episode about who should sponsor this. Like, mm-hmm. uh, regardless of the, you know, we can argue about the personality of Steve Jobs, but also he was a rebel himself. And this was. is why, yeah. And this is why, of course, like he had this personality, the bipolar disorder that everyone, you know, and if you read also his, his autobiography uh, uh, of Steve Jobs, you would see this a lot happening. But he was a rebel. The team was a rebel, also as well that he he used to work with. And actually, you know, like in the long run, actually the, all the breakthrough product that came out from Apple was a clash between like two rebels together. If you if you want, and to your point, like this is we, something we see a lot now. Something you talk about, and you, I know that your company is, is like uh, has the same name, so. What is the engine to innovation? You know, like why why you call it an engine? Is it an engine to grow? Is it engine to to take the company to a let's say unicorn stage? <laughs> is is it like to take the company to a new market? What is it exactly? What is this
2: engine? Yeah, Tell engine to engine to growth, engine to innovation, or, in, or or just called engine twos, really comes from uh, the people at Bain, who kind of. Uh, there's an article that the uh, Harvard Business Review article that says, you know, when your business needs a second growth engine and they really lay out the framework well. And so an engine two is when your core business is kind of, it's, it's reaching the top of the S curve, right? <laughs> and, and everybody knows that the S curve is not going to last forever. This core business is eventually going to run out of steam and somehow we have to hop onto a new S curve. And so an engine two would be like BlackBerry messenger service, BBM, was a, was a perfect example of a, of a engine two because it extended life of the BlackBerry. Once iPhone was released, BlackBerry still, was still selling like hotcakes because of BBM. Mm-hmm. And so uh, an engine two is simply a, a, a new, what becomes kind of your core business or your stronger core business. That is uh, some paradigm, it's based on some paradigm breaking breakthrough that, that, that happens. So, you know, the IBM 360 was an engine too. You know, they had these really successful computers, but they, uh, they created an entirely new architecture, new approach, the IBM 360, and that was an engine too. So that way their core business only could get them this far and, and was eventually going to slow down and fail. Now you've got a brand new thing and you're on a brand new S curve. And so you're on, you're, you're riding the growth curve up again. So that's what an engine two is, is that every core business um, matures. And, you know, if you want to sustain growth, you've got to go out and create new growth engines. And if you have a billion dollar business, you're going to need to create billion dollar growth engines. And so that's what the engine twos are.
1: Great. And I know you, you have another term, which is Horizon
2: three innovation. So what is that? Yeah, so Horizon Three comes from the McKinsey framework called, you know, the the three horizons of growth, and what they're really saying is that uh, you you don't create you don't create new growth engines like next week. Again, if if you need to show growth next week, you go out and buy a company because that's the only way you're going to succeed. Uh, and so there's three M- McKinsey. There's there's a book um, that kind of lays out the three horizons of growth. The first is inside your core business you're inside the current uh, s curve you there's all kinds of ways to extend and strengthen your s curve right you can do geographic ex- extension uh expansion you can do line item extensions you can do add new features and new capabilities you can push the performance up so those are all innovation within your existing uh core business and that's what that's what companies are good at right that, that's really what where they excel the next the in uh, the uh, horizon two growth are the businesses that are just starting to to kind of grow so let's say that you bought a company, uh, a startup and it, it's it's just starting to grow but it's it's kind of on the early scaling phase and those are different processes and capabilities you need to actually successfully really scale that in a way that's going to reach its potential. then the next one the horizon three are the ones that are just uh, are just basically ideas or early kind of experimental projects. And that's what I'm saying is that the corporate rebel model is where you're going to generate your engine threes inside of your company or or your horizon three opportunities right inside of your company. You don't have to, you you don't have to buy a startup anymore to, to get this. You, you, you do it um, through these unofficial skunkworks projects. So horizon three growth that in the book in McKinsey's book, they lay out a whole, you know, they kind of walk through how you're supposed to do this, but of course they're, they're basically making bets on people and ideas on problems and, and that approach doesn't work. So what I'm saying is that, uh, the, the, the idea, the concepts of, of horizon three are great. McKinsey's answer, of how you do it, where you just basically predict the, you know, you, you pick the winners and, <laughs> and hope for the best. That's the model that has is proven not to work. The corporate rebel model is a much better way to do that. And I think, Jim, this is very valuable.
1: Um, again, you see me like going back to startups because, on the hope, you know, and this is something I wish I see one day, is that <laughs> all startups becomes big corporate. Right. They need. They need. They need to have this um, framework, let's call it, and to be prepared from now. And I know, like we repeat this, uh, we talked, you know, about it, me and you about how companies, they fail later because they were not able to innovate. I like to, you know, ring the bell even in the early days that this is something you need to put in mind from now. Although now maybe you are a st- small startup, maybe you are 5, 10, 20 people, but you're going to reach a phase. Don't, you know, think the world ended when, you know, you are now in the top. Like everything <laughs> That's is right. quite fine. Because That's probably, right. and this is related, you know, a little bit to the, Another thing that I like a lot to talk about, which is, you know, the blue ocean, red ocean, yes. uh, you know, concept. Because actually you just mentioned, like, because w- once you reach the peak, probably all the others are also approaching you. And then you're going to be in a very crowded place. And then you need to take yourself to another uh, to another peak. And, you know, start yeah. can start from, from, from another place to go all up the way, as you said, in the S-curve. So mm-hmm. this is very important. And the reason I'm repeating this again and again, like, don't be tricked by you know winning fast and you know hey like now I'm 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 you know I'm done I don't need to innovate anymore. So this is, and I know it's very traditional uh, quote maybe like it's 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 a it's a marathon, it's not a sprint, <clears throat> but it it is really a marathon and it's a never-ending marathon. So they need to do it. You mentioned some books, Jim. Like you mentioned the McKinsey one. Any other books where you know we can? Learn more about all this. Is there any, any books you recommend?
2: Yeah, I think the best book to understand how breakthroughs really happen and why they're so unusual is Thomas Kuhn's uh, The History of Scientific Revolutions. Now, it's funny because that book doesn't, you know, the innovation does not show up in that book. The word innovation doesn't show up in the book once, right? He's really talking about scientific breakthroughs, but what he, he's the person who coined the term paradigm. And it's if you want to understand innovation you want to understand breakthroughs you've got to understand how powerful paradigms are paradigms are amazing because they let us they focus our attention that you know once you're on an S curve you're living inside of a paradigm where we understand how we how we succeed we understand what we compete on and now it's about strengthening that so there's all kinds of activity to extend and strengthen uh, that, that, that existing paradigm. And that's mostly what we do inside big companies. That's mostly what scientists do working within a paradigm. But what happens is that there eventually the paradigm starts to break down. So, you know, in, in the scientific world, you know, Newton's laws of, of, of physics started to, to break down. They weren't explaining things. There were all these anomalies. Right. Uh, and, and so everybody knew the paradigm was broken. But you can still use a paradigm to do a lot of good things, but everybody knew it was broken and some some things were fundamentally wrong. That's where you need a breakthrough, somebody that's coming way outside of the paradigm to actually say, This is this is different. And so under and, and explains, you know, why it's so hard, why it normally comes from people and places that that experts least expect. I mean, like, you know, Einstein. Nobody was going to pick Einstein to revolutionize the laws of physics. This guy couldn't even get a job in his own industry, right? Like he had to become a patent clerk because nobody would hire him. That's why you can't, you don't go out and pick the best and brightest. Uh, If you want to, if you want to create breakthroughs, the best and brightest are almost always not going to, not going to succeed for you. It's going to come from kind of the, the weirdos and and the knuckleheads, you know, like watch, watch Apple's old commercial about, you know, the, the the people that actually change the world they're they're not the people that you would ever pick in the early days and so um, so I think that's the probably one of the best books on innovation because if you don't understand paradigms you're not going to understand anything about innovation and and you're going to lull yourself into the myth that the innovation models try to tell you that you can you know just use a lean startup process and you will go out and create the next billion dollar breakthrough except the problem is no it it hasn't worked. It doesn't work. Um, you know, blue ocean strategy. The the concepts in there are great, but in terms of actual model to go out and create breakthroughs, it 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 has not worked. Disruptive innovation. So we have all these sexy innovation models. The Thomas Kuhn's book, I would say, explains why those <laughs> aren't work, don't work, and why they will never work. And then uh, I also really like uh, Thomas Johnson's. Or, I'm sorry, Michael Johnson's book called um, Where Good Ideas Come From. Uh mm-hmm. huh. Because it really, it, it, it's the ideas. You know, the breakthrough ideas really are um, from really unexpected places. And he kind of talks about the you know adjacent possible and liquid networks, and and that's another thing. Like the whole net, liquid networks thing is is fascinating because in our in a world, if you live in a city on a per capita basis, people living in cities are more innovative. Like, you know, there's a ton of research that shows this. there's more connections. There's more, and, and more connections just means there's more opportunities to ideas to bounce off each other and actually do something, right? There's more opportunities for collaboration. When you go to a small town, uh, you don't have nearly as much innovation on a per capita basis, just because there's, there's fewer people and fewer, fewer connections. Well, you would; those same laws should work in big companies. Uh, you know, it's it's like we have so many people, so many connections, and we don't see this happening. Where we do see it happening in nature, this means that something is stopping it, something is stifling it, and um, and, and that's kind of interesting. So uh, uh, Johnson's book, "Where Good Ideas Come From," is this the second one? And and then you know the funny the funny thing I think you know one of the things one of the quips I like to make is that. Uh you can learn more about innovation by watching The Wizard of Oz than you can by reading ninety five percent of the books on innovation out there because uh you know Dorothy is the classic person who sets out to accomplish something that she has no business doing right like she, um, and she's not the heroic type she's the unexpected hero right uh in, in the beginning of the movie. You know she's so kind of helpless and pathetic that when she falls in the pigsty, like she can't even get herself out. Like her uncle has to come and and pick her out. Nobody was going to pick Dorothy to be, you know, to go off and and save the world, right? Yeah. Uh, but once uh, once her dog is is uh, is threatened, you know, at first she doesn't. It's like she tries to get everybody else to solve the problem for her. It's like you know, please, Auntie, save my dog. You know, save Toto, Uncle, save Toto, and nobody nobody would do it. And so eventually. It she, she reaches the point where it's like, nobody's gonna do it, I'm gonna have to do it myself. This is exactly how corporate rebels work. This is exactly how the innovation things work. That it's something that hits you and it says, I can't wait around for other people to do it, I've gotta do it myself. And then what's funny is as she's on this journey and she's going along, she's starting to get a little bit more confident. She's starting to look like she's a person who knows what she's doing and suddenly other people are joining the team. So this whole idea that innovation is a team sport is true, but it doesn't start with a great team who, you know, just because they're so brilliant and they bounce ideas off each other. They No, it starts as a lonely journey. And then you attract people along the way because you're going somewhere. So um, watch Wizard of Oz if you want to learn about innovation.
1: <laughs> That's great. Great, great, great one. Uh, Jim, like as we come to, to an end, how you can help, you know, companies and where they can find more about you?
2: Ah, Thank you. My website is uh, engine2innovation. 2, Two is a number. Uh, I'm sorry. So, so the, you know, the URL is engine2.us. So engine2 with a number.us. And then I'm easy to find on LinkedIn or anywhere else because I think I'm the only person on the planet with the name Jim Burquist. So look me up and you can get to the website and the information that I put out uh, through, through LinkedIn or other channels. Sure,
1: I will make sure also to put uh,
2: the link you just mentioned in the show notes so they can visit
1: the website and, you know, highly advise to to reach out to Jim if you are stuck and you're thinking, oh, like we, we're reaching a dead end, right? Because I think, <laughs> I think you know, you don't need to live the frustration. We, we you know, we, there's always solutions. There's always, I believe. And Jim, like actually the work you're doing is fantastic to enlighten, you know, corporates how they can find, the rebels within, let's call it this way, yes. and keep keep innovating and keep you know growing and keep you know being the company, the iconic company that everyone wants to be, right? So I think this is very crucial. Um is there anything that you think we should have talked about? Is there any final thought you want to to leave us with today, Jim, before we close?
2: Yeah, the biggest I think the one thing I would say is that the 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 companies are operating with a flawed assumption that we really have to be smart about. When it comes to innovation, we have to be smart, right? We, we, because we can't possibly pursue every idea that people inside the company may want to work on. And that is true. If you think that you have to fund projects and, you know, put people, give them time and money and things like that. What the corporate rebel model shows is that that assumption is no longer true. You, you can literally work on, you can let people work on any any idea, any project that they want to work on and you don't have to give them anything. And so we move away from kind of a, a, a situation of scarcity and having to be smart and clever, which is exactly what's getting us into trouble, into uh, a, an abundance where we we actually, if you have an idea and you think it can be big for the company. Uh, You're not going to get anything, but go prove us wrong. Like we we don't buy it (laughs) Uh, and we're pretty smart people. So, you know, you're going to have to do some work to to prove it to us, but you are free to do that. And I think it changes everything.
1: Yeah, very good insight. And just, you know, if you allow me like very shortly in one or two sentence, this works, whatever the size of your company. I was lucky enough uh, around 15 years back to work with someone, although like we were like very small organization but i was very lucky to have a leader who always encouraged us to go try new things you know and and uh, see how how you can make things better and you know we were really motivated it's not only about you know getting um, maybe always from financial perspective but also you mm-hmm. know like you can you can feel you are as you mentioned at the beginning like you know we we leave the world better in a better phase, shape as we found it and this is very, very important, you know, to 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 keep driving for innovation. I know that people, they don't love change, but it's a fact that we're going to change all the time. So better that you act now rather than, you know, regretting this uh, later on. Jim, really, I enjoyed the conversation with you today. You know, a lot of insights you added to us. So we know now what is the rebel model is, how to implement it. What are the, I would say, the persona that should be uh, available to to make it a success. We talked about also the the different models, whether it's you know the the, the engine two innovation, the horizon three innovation, and all this. So it's a really uh, very 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 informative uh, episode, I would say. At least from me, I learned a lot from you today. So thank you for sharing the knowledge with us today. And as usual, this is how I end my episodes. Well, if you are a first time uh, listener or you know watching this. Thank you for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed. So don't forget to subscribe and, you know, keep watching the the, the podcast or listening to it. And for the, you know, loyal audience that always they send me their notes and emails. Thank you very much also for reaching out to me. And please, please, please let me know the feedback. And if you are interested to be also on the show, don't hesitate to reach out to me. You have an idea. Maybe you, you want to to some innovation on something. So let's discuss it and let's make it reach to as much people as possible. And thank you again for tuning in. We will see you in the next episode. Thank you. Bye-bye.
0: Hit that subscribe button. Share the show with your tech-savvy friends and fellow entrepreneurs and leave us a review on your favorite podcast app. Your support means the world to us.